0: Father, we come to you expectantly this morning because we know you're a God who loves to speak. Because we have your words open in our hands. And so we pray that you would speak to us in the midst of the situations that we find ourselves in. We, we don't want to leave those things at the door, but we long that we might hear your voice speaking into them. And Father, in a diverse room like this with people who... You have paid employment and people who don't and people who would like it and people who can't. We pray that you would, pray that your living word would come alive to each of us. Father, we come to you expectantly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last few weeks, we've been um, week by week taking it. Do you remember a different thread from this foundational idea of what it means to be made in God's image? and we've we've followed one of those threads each week uh, considering the big picture foundational truths of where it leads us but then the little picture daily realities of of what it means for monday morning and how we treat those people around us whether that's as individuals or or as a church or even as a society because there's a whole lot of confusion we said and contradictions out there at the moment as to Whether and why and how people have a dignity and value and worth. Where that comes from. How do you construct those things in a society that seems to have snipped itself off from God? When does dignity, value, worth start in someone's life? When does it end? And so this week as we finish off, and you've probably picked it up as we've gone through the service. And we're thinking about work. Because a key point of being made in God's image, I take it from the Bible, is is his commission for us, his mandate for us to follow his pattern and to work and to, to subdue the earth. So here are some questions for you to reflect on as we start. How has work been this week? Not simply paid employment, but whatever it is that keeps you busy. That part of your time of your life that you, perhaps in the workplace or at home or with kids or keeping the house in order or school or university, whatever it might be, how has your work been this week? Are you happy to have reached the weekend? Is there a sigh of relief? Are you looking forward to heading back to work tomorrow or feeling of despair or are you teachers you don't have to go to work it's half term parents you've got kids at home what are the highlights of your work the things you love what are the nightmares the things that just make your heart sink what are the bits that you happily do and the bits that you happily delegate and try to avoid If you are employed, do you want to move jobs at the moment? Is the grass looking greener elsewhere? Why are you looking? Why does it look greener? How long do you spend at work on average through the week? Who do you work with? What are they like? Sat where you are now, looking around you, do you know what the people around you do through the week? Do you know the reality of their lives, their work life? Do you know their daily struggles, their joys, their frustrations? Do You see, I think, I think work is a very complicated thing. It's an important topic for many of us. The reason we need to think about it, is aside from it dominating our lives so much? Because the fact that we're introduced to it very early on in the scriptures, it's a, it's a key foundational idea from Genesis 1 and 2, and this is the extraordinary fact that I want you to latch onto at the beginning. There was work in paradise. And so work is great, question mark. We saw it last week, if you were here, as we are thinking about stewardship and how we look after the world or not. But let's turn it up again and think through some of the implications for us and how we understand this concept of work. So open, if you will, Genesis 1, verse 28, it's a verse we've probably been in every week for the last seven weeks, but in case you've forgotten it, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So remember, big picture, part of the job description for humanity, a humanity made in God's image, is that under God we are to spread out, fill the earth, and we are to subdue it, which is striking on the way past, because obviously they're in the garden at this point. So that was never meant to be the end game. But as we said last week, the the problem, if you like, in chapter one is that there are very strong verbs, particularly in verse twenty eight. And yet if we think it's okay to abuse and dominate and to ruin the earth for our gain, like that basil plant from the poor old tailors, that poor old basil plant from the tailors, perhaps, chapter 2 shapes afresh and tempers what it means for us to fill and to subdue the earth. We're not just to abuse it and dominate it. So have a look at chapter 2, they're much softer verbs, almost pastoral verbs, 2 and verse 5, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. Or again, flick down to verse 15 again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So you see the end of God's creating work, if you like, is the beginning of humanity's work. It's how God made the world. So why has no shrub appeared in 2 verse 5? Well, it tells us. Firstly, there's no rain yet. But secondly, did you see it? Because there's no one to work the ground. And so verse 15, he does work the ground. Man is in the garden, he works it and he takes care of it. He makes it fruitful and productive and ordered and it's a privilege. Work is necessary and work is good. And And I suspect most of us, lots of the time, need reminding of that fact. Because like a shopping trolley, our, our hearts veer towards moaning about work. And what a nightmare it is. That's our default thought, isn't it? If we're honest, most of us. But it's how God designed the world to work. It's how the world functions. It's what we were made for. It's very striking. Someone put it like this. Work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. And as we've said, it's not necessarily through paid employment, although for many of us that will be the reality of what comes into our mind when we think of work. But maybe not. Maybe through a season of life, maybe retirement, maybe we would like to be working but can't be, maybe because of ill health or unemployment, or whatever it might be. And so, if that's you, then when you think work, think cultivating. Maybe, maybe, maybe it is washing up. Maybe it's being creative. Maybe it's changing nappies, or or cooking, or being educated at this point, whether through school or university. Maybe it's maybe work is tidying away that chaos of toys at the end of each day at home. Maybe it's gardening, trying to bring order to your jungle, your herbs. Maybe it's admin. Maybe it's voluntary work. But whoever we are, fundamentally, work is necessary and work is good. There is work in paradise. Maybe your question, though, is well, are we simply to be gardeners and foresters and farmers? Because that seems to be the pattern in, in, in chapter 2. Is, is that all there is? Is that the end of what it means to work? Well, clearly not. As the pages of scripture turn, we'll see that developing. But I think we've even got some clear glimpses of it in, in chapter two itself of Genesis. There's there's more to it than just being a farmer or a gardener or a forester. See what you think. But have a look down at verse twelve for starters. I think it's a slightly curious verse when you think about it. Verse twelve: the gold of that land is good, aromatic resin and onyx are also there. And it's in brackets, so we might think it's not particularly important, at least in our English translation. But why would gardeners and foresters and farmers need to hear about golds or resin or onyx? What does that mean? Isn't it that they're to be discovered and developed? It's sort of tantalizing description of these precious commodities ready for, for mining, ready for smelting, ready for creating. It It sounds potentially like we're getting towards technology to me. Isn't that interesting? Or, or what about 19 and 20? You see it there. So, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. Why didn't God name them? Is he just being lazy? Well, no, surely it's because Adam has been given a a brain and eyes. And he can use that brain and those eyes for creativity, for classification, for scientific systematizing. We we call it taxonomy. You scientists out there, it's in Genesis chapter 2. Or even have a look at verse 23. "The man said, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh; she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man." What does Adam do when he sees Eve? It's a poem. He, he writes a song, a love poem for his wife. It's Valentine's Day. Do you ever write love poems? You ever considered it? If not, you're in good company. Maybe give it a go. But you see the point, there was work in paradise. There are glimpses, I think, of all kinds of work. Little embryonic snapshots of of how those things will develop as the Bible opens up and as the pages turn. But there was work in paradise. And I think we get this at times. You get to the end of that task you feel that fulfilment and satisfaction, and you feel energised. Go chat to Ida about her new book. And you might be exhausted by the end of it, but, but you know all is well with the world and their satisfaction. And you think, this is what I was made for. Or else we know the flip side. And as Sarah was praying earlier, we're not, for whatever reason, able to be productive. We're not able to cultivate Maybe we're in the wrong job and we're struggling. Maybe we're out of work for ill health or unemployment or between jobs or or we're struggling with retirement and having to slow down. Or, and we know we were sort of made for work and we feel a guilt because we're not able to do it. We, we miss engaging in our, our vocation, our calling. We we struggle to know who we are. Perhaps we feel identity issues. So it's a challenge. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that there was work in paradise. And And I put that really bluntly because much of our society's thinking is about dreaming of a place of no work. So if you do the word association game and I say to you, paradise, you say sun or sea or sandy beaches or peace and quiet or palm trees or whatever it might be. And those things are all good things. But I wonder if when I say paradise, we should think work. Maybe not. But in the Bible, the, the blueprint at the very beginning and the heart of the paradise in the garden, there is dignified work because that is how God made it. That is how God created for us to play a part. And yet our society lives for the evening or the weekend or the holidays. Or for retirement? Why? Well, I take it because we all know that work can be awful. And it's why we so often spend so much of our time moaning about it. Why is that? Well, as we've already read, Genesis 1 and 2 slides into Genesis 3, falls into Genesis 3. As Adam and Eve walk out on God and his kind Rule over them. So the world breaks and so relationships are ruined, whether relationships between God and man or man and man or man and creation, everything is mucked up, everything is shattered. Mm -hmm. They say, no God, we don't want to live under your good rule. And so God to the woman says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you'll give birth to children, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it, while cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Do you see what? Work is no longer good. They're still to fill and subdue and be fruitful, but it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be really hard. And so, work ends up being this mixed bag for us. And of course, that's both in the actual work that we do, but also the people that we work with, because relationships are broken, how we relate to those around us. We have difficult bosses, we have difficult colleagues. The work is still necessary, it's still the pattern, it's still the blueprint for the way creation works. Just now there are going to be thorns and thistles and, and blisters and computers are going to crash and you will lose your work at the very last minute. And emails will go missing and you'll replace reply to all by mistake and look like a fool. And numbers won't add up as you expect them to and words don't flow as you want them to. And bosses will bully you and colleagues will annoy you. And children won't listen to you, as they ought to. And and nothing quite goes right, and so you can't face getting out of bed on Monday morning. And if you're anything like me, being honest with you, the the reality of of your experience of of that is this curious mix that we get. I've said this before, but on Tuesday, it might be a Genesis 2 day. Uh, And you get your to-do list done by lunchtime. And you can crack on with other things you've been putting aside, and all is well with the world. And you feel that satisfaction, achievement, fulfillment, the warm glow of a job well done. But then it's Thursday, and it's a Genesis 3 day. And there's a whole load of extra work that falls onto your desk, because it's always your desk. And the internet is down. And the people in your team are arguing with each other and you've been outmaneuvered in that meeting and there's kind of office politics happening and you just can't seem to get anything right and why do you bother? Do so we get this mix of days of satisfaction and days of sadness? Another place the Bible colours in the details for us of this idea is in Ecclesiastes. It's a book. If you've not read Ecclesiastes, let me urge you to read it. It's a book highlighting the the meaninglessness of life under the sun in a fallen and a broken world. And in it, the writer engages in various projects to try and work out what the world is about. He's trying to chase away this sense of pointlessness with life. It's a very contemporary book for a cynical people of our age. So, For example, in chapter 1, he tries to make sense of life through, through li- wisdom and through learning and through study. Or in chapter 2, he seeks fulfilment through pleasure and creating houses and vineyards and gardens and amasses money and wives. But it's his third project in Ecclesiastes that is of relevance to us because it's a project of work. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I don't have a page number. Does anyone have a page number? 671, thank you. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. It's contemporary, isn't it? Do you see his problem under the sun? The problem of life is death. Even if you're one of the few people who managed to achieve the goals of productivity and fruitfulness and you you see your hopes realised and you can leave a legacy, one day you're going to leave the treadmill of life and all that you've worked for will be left behind. And you don't know who's going to end up getting after you. Whether quickly or slowly the results of your labour will be wiped away by history. Even if your work life is is fruitful, you'll still end up feeling frustrated. Because if life under the sun is all there is, then this side of the fall, death and decay, is always the end, and work is always ultimately pointless. It is meaningless, says the writer. Death will rob us. But of course the pages flick. The story continues to unfold, and onto the pages of history walks a man called Jesus. And his life and death and resurrection and ascension will change everything, will change our perspective on life. Because through his life and death and resurrection, we can have life, which means our our work is transformed, perhaps. Perhaps. So we're saying that even after the work of Christ, we still have Genesis 1 and 2 days on a Tuesday and Genesis 3 days on a Thursday. The cross hasn't changed that yet because we're still in these bodies, in this world, with these colleagues and these distractions going on. But what the cross does do is give us a new perspective on work initially. That, that will challenge and will change our attitude of life in the workplace for now. And ultimately, it will give meaning to us because death is no longer the end for our work. So, if you'll open up Colossians three, and I'm going to read to us just from verse twenty-two through to uh, three, verse twenty-two through to four, verse one. Slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we're, we're not slaves per se, as Paul will be writing here in Colossians, but actually as you work on understanding the kind, the kind of standing and rights that first century slaves or servants had, I think we're not so far off employment for today. We can at least grip onto the principles and see how they apply. And yet you see what is initially transformed Have a look down at Colossians 3. Do you see what's initially transformed as we consider work? It is who we are now working for. And from my experience of working in various jobs and speaking to a number of people over the years, talking about the workplace, it seems pretty common that we frequently find ourselves poorly managed, unappreciated, Often criticised, seldom thanked. Often put upon, but seldom helped. Often told, but seldom listened to. And quite simply, that is a great motivation, or a great recipe for a lack of motivation. For simply doing the minimum, for simply seeking to get by. And yet from Colossians 3, that is not true for the Christian, because we have a new perspective not for the Christian slave, not for the Christian parent or teacher or lab technician or academic or doctor or housewife or house husband or office worker or, or minister or whoever it may be. Who does the Christian teacher work for now? Do they work for the head? Do they work for the government? No. Who does the Christian lawyer work for now? Do they work for the firm? No. Who does the Christian homemaker work for? Do they work for the family? No, we're we're working, verse 23, for the Lord, not for human masters. We're working, verse 24, for the Lord Christ. It is he whom we are serving, not the Lord NHS or the Lord Oxford University or the Lord Council or even the Lord Self. So as you turn up to work tomorrow, Or as you head through the front door, or you open your laptop, or you try and entertain the children, however you're going to this week, as you switch on CBeebies. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving, ultimately. Which I think changes our perspective on how we consider work. Now, many of us obviously do have earthly masters. We do have obligations towards them. But verse 23 is the key thing, I think, for Christians as we consider our workplaces. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And if you can take that home with you and chew on that this week and meditate upon it and think about what it means for you, then I'm happy. We're done but we're not. A bit longer. Because Paul doesn't stop there. He rubs it in. He knows our slippery hearts and he knows our excuses and he knows what we're like. And so verse 22, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart. Or 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. And our hearts sink because he points at his watch and says, obedience all the time. And he points at his heart and said, obedience from within. And all the time, verse 22, the actual word is eye service. And he means it's not just working hard when they're watching you, but all the time. And there is a culture of just getting down to work when you're noticed. I've seen it, people can be so two-faced. There's this superficial burst of enthusiasm when the the boss walks in and then when they leave, it's back to BBC Sport webpage. Or whatever it is for you. But obedience is all the time. Because you're working for the Lord and his eye is always on you and he's always in the room 24-7. He is never not there. But I think there's a big danger here. Because I think we easily veer towards painting Jesus as a cross boss. And our motivation for working for him is not because he is looking for us to slip up. He is looking to accuse us. He is looking to make us feel guilty. But because he is kind and he is good and he is loving. And as you read through Colossians and you see the kind of master Jesus is and you see his character, then wouldn't we want to work for a boss like that who is powerful and loving and good? So yes, there's never a point when he's not watching. Yes, we should never slack off, but remember who he is. The danger is we we read Colossians 3.23 and we think, I'm going to have to work hard because he's watching me. But he's good. He loves us. It's a similar thing to, with all our hearts. Verse 22, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And, and this is a challenge because it's pretty easy, particularly on a Genesis 3 day, to work begrudgingly and just to churn out what we need to do and just to tick the boxes and just to get home again. And there can be a sort of surface obedience that people can see, but underneath we are resentful and we are bitter. We are just dragging our feet and moaning about it. But remember, he loves you. He is good. He is the kind of master that you want to work for. Because he's the kind of master who's laid down his life for you. He doesn't just look on the outside and what you're doing, he looks on the inside He sees why you're working. He sees the kind of hearts that we have as we serve. But he is good and he loves us. He's not there looking for us to slip up. He wants to encourage us. And you know, that means that anything we do can basically end up being sacred or secular. Any job, depending on our hearts, can go one of two ways. I can load the dishwasher which we seem to perpetually do in our house and I can do it wholeheartedly for the Lord and he is pleased with that. An everyday event like loading or unloading a dishwasher can become sacred and worship. But equally I can prepare a Bible study or I can write a sermon and I can do it for the wrong reasons. I can do it for my boss The elders, I'm not sure. You guys, I'm never quite sure. I can do it for myself. I can do it just to get it out of the way. I can do it to try and be an impressive. And I can do it not for the Lord. And essentially, even a sermon becomes secular. My motives are elsewhere. Every small work we do is an opportunity. And so Jesus redefines our attitudes to our work. We're, We're to work as if for him. Our work matters in what we do and how we do it. And that's true for for relating to those over us, which I take it we all will do, but also as we relate to those under us. Just briefly in 4 verse 1 Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. If you have people under you, have you grasped this outworking of the gospel? It's very practical if you oversee people, if you supervise people, treat them as he treats you. He is always right and fair and kind to you. And so always be right and fair and kind to them. The gospel transforms our attitude at work as we, as we look up the food chain to those over us and as we look down to people who report to us. And yet, as a slight aside, I'm just aware that we still need to tell our friends about him. It's just a bit of a lay-by, but if you're anything like me, you can be all right at being different and hoping people will ask why you are different. But you're fearful of initiating that chat to tell them why you are different. Many um, of you will know I used to work on the sort of fringes of the advertising industry. So we would help different brands, um, assess the effectiveness of their communications with the world, working out whether different adverts had had the desired effects that they wanted. And as in all spheres of life, there are different things, different agendas going on when you think about advertising. So if you are an advertising agency, to try and put your head into that role for this moment, you're wanting to make a good advert, But how do you define what a good advert is? Is it one that will increase sales? Quite possibly. Is it one that will change perceptions of the brand that you are advertising? Quite possibly. But what about this? Is a good advert one that will get your advertising agency noticed? Is a good advert one that will make a name for you? as a creative is it one that will win awards perhaps and you see here's the huge danger with adverts you can sit and enjoy an advert sometimes and it can be funny or it can be clever or it can be beautiful or whatever you can really admire it i love that advert what was it for we haven't got a clue So I take it sometimes as Christians, we can be really good at our job, we can do it excellently. We can seek to glorify God with our work. But you see, seeking to glorify him when our colleagues don't even know we're Christians is a bit like watching a beautiful, clever TV advert that we admire and we think is amazing, but we don't know what it's for. We don't know where it's pointing. We don't know what it's about. Actually, when I worked in that environment, the surprise for me was having been able to raise my Christian flag quite early on, and let my colleagues know why my attitude was different, there were far more opportunities than I expected, and they were far more positive than I expected them to be. The gospel of Christ transforms our attitude to our work, but there's still the need to tell people why our work attitude is transformed. And you see, the gospel of Christ transforms our attitude to our work, and well it might, because I take it, just as there was work in Eden, I take it there will be work in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, the cross and the resurrection is, is the answer to what the writer of the Ecclesiastes longed for. This is the way to make the results of our work eternal. And sometimes we're almost embarrassed by it, but I think Jesus teaches there will be rewards for our obedience. He says, for those who have been faithful with what he's given them, he promises them more. And so I take it work will be forever. Before you shout at me, yes, we will rest. Don't worry. Yes, we will know the true rest of being in the relationship with God that we were made for, in bodies that aren't broken, in relationships that aren't tiring with sin that's finally dealt with. But I take it, in the new heavens and the new earth, which will be physical, like a garden city type thing it's described, there will be work to do, just there won't be the frustrations of the now. There won't be thistles and blisters and toil. Just as work was the initial blueprint and pattern, so as the Lord Jesus in his parables speaks of those who will be rewarded for faithfulness, as as Paul even says in Colossians, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. I take it for those who are faithful with what he's given us, he will give us more to do in the new heavens and the new earth. Responsibilities, opportunities. Which sounds like work, a chance to serve. I think our work will be forever. We won't need doctors. We won't need lawyers or policemen but I take it we will work. Even though there will be no more tears or death or crying, we will work. Let me pray for us.